0: Okay, so um, as I mentioned last time, I will put up due dates up here. I'll try to keep track of everything that we have. The only things that won't go up there are are labs and anything assignments that we do directly in class. So the first few due dates uh, spread out over beginning to middle of September. Uh, The earliest one coming up next week is the extra credit assignment that I gave you last time. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, send me the email that you were able to. If you don't want to deal with it and still want the extra credit, just send me an email from your Hawkmail that says, I'd prefer not to, but I still want to to get the chance for the extra credit. So just send me an email from your Hawkmail assignment stating either one. Either is perfectly fine. Um, It's due September 4th, which is the next time we meet, should be, if I'm counting correctly. That would be next Tuesday. Uh, So you would have through the end of the day Tuesday to finish it which for me is actually 6 o'clock the following morning I give you. If you really want to stay up till 3 in the morning working on a homework assignment or any of the other assignments, you can always do that. Um, the only thing is that this one is a little bit different than the others because it requires a response from me. So if you decide to do that one at 3 in the morning, you're not going to get it finished on time because I'm not going to be monitoring the emails all night to get, it in, to, get, to get you a reply back so you can have it in. So get me an email sometime you know, late afternoon, very early evening, seven, eight o'clock, I'll check them before bedtime and make sure that I've replied to anybody who wants to finish that assignment. And that's the podcast. That's the podcast one. And it's just the email. If you do it this weekend, you're fine. It's not that you can't send it at three o'clock in the morning tomorrow, that's perfectly fine. It's if you send it an hour before it's due, I may not be up, I may not have it checked, I may not get that back to you before the assignment's actually due. Well, in which case, you could still do it and you just lose 10 percent. It's not going to kill you, but you know, I hate you know, extra credit points take what you can get because you never know how you'll click with my exams or anything uh, for that. So again, I'm just just qualifying that, that that's the only one. Most of the others do not require anything from me, so you can just go ahead and submit them. And if you're one who likes to work and stay up till two, three, four in the morning and work on them, that's up to you. Uh, the second one is the first solar observation. I'm looking for one, just one successful observation that you've been able to get. So if you haven't, take a look at the sheet there that I discussed last time. Again, you only need those first first five columns. And all I want you to submit there is a photo or scan of your data sheet. So if you've got one observation, that's all you need to get credit for the first one. If you've got more, that's great. It would be great if you could have two by then just because you know you're getting on the right track for it and you're not falling behind. But if you have one successful observation, I will give you credit for it. If you want feedback, I don't require it for this class. I require it for my online ones. Take a picture of your setup and you can send it with that. Or you can show it to me before class, or after class, or whatever, and I'll be happy to give you any feedback as to how the measurements are going. Because that's something that's sometimes hard to see. I can see that your measurements are off, but until I see what you're doing, I can't say, oh, you need to twist this a little bit, or you need to measure from here, or you're measuring too much. So it's, it's useful. I think you'll find it very useful. Uh, but I'm not requiring it. So. That's what I'm looking for. That would be September the 11th. And then the following week will be a little bit bigger for us as we have a couple of the bigger assignments coming through the homework that I gave you last time. I'm trying to judge, there there would be an off chance that I'd have everything ready by the 13th and I'd be through everything. But I have a feeling if I schedule it for the 13th, I'm gonna be pushing it off a week anyway. So I'm just gonna go ahead and play it safe, schedule the homework and the exam to be the following week. So, that I know I will be easily through chapters one through four. We'll probably actually be working on chapters five and into chapter six by the time we take the exam. But that way, I know we're all through it and we're not having to reschedule everything. If we end up way ahead or anything afterwards, then we can catch up and you might end up having exam two, you know, two weeks after exam one. But that's what I have scheduled. That's what I'm looking at as the schedule for right now. Um, The only other thing I did not put up there, and I do have to readjust the dates on them, are the quizzes that you can take up on D2L that are extra credit. I'm going to adjust the dates so that the first three of them, which are the ones that cover the first exam, are available up until the exam. So you can use them for review, and then whatever the last time you take them, you can get up to three points of extra credit, depending on how well your last attempt went on, on those quizzes. So I will adjust those dates. If you look at it now, I think it's telling you that one is due next week. Don't worry about it. I will change that date. If you want to go take it and pre- review chapter one material, you can certainly do that as well. So those are sort of the first few things that are coming up, other than yeah, we have a lab today, so it's only half a lecture. And then we'll uh, do lab for the second portion of the, of the class. So questions? Otherwise, if you came in later, you don't have to rush up now. But make sure before you leave, you sign in, so I get your credit for being here. So make sure you ha- do sign in. I'm not marking anybody late for till the following week. So for the and send me the, your data table. I want to see your measurements all right, too. That's what I meant. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I want to see. The, so if you just want to send that data sheet, just just show me all the observations you've made so far. If it's one, that's okay. If it's two, that's great if it's 5 hey, you're really you're really are really pushing it and getting a good start on it but one or two would probably be about the best to get right now but yeah all i need all i need is a photograph or scan of that uh, works works really well do we have to email to you? i'm sorry do you have to email to you? you submit it up on if you're going to either bring in a copy you can either bring me a copy on tuesday tuesday yeah the next tuesday or you can submit it up on blackboard Blackboard, D2L. Sorry, I'll get them. <laughs> I teach a class at another school that uses Blackboard, so if you hear me going back and forth, that's the same. I mean the same thing when I'm saying that. So you can you submit it on D2L. You can also, br- don't give me your original. Make a copy of it and send it and give it to me. So is there like a Dropbox? There is a Dropbox set up for it up on D2L that you can submit a copy of it. So either way is up to you. I just don't want your original because I'll take them on Tuesday, then I'll look at them. And then I have to try to keep track of everything. And you don't have it for a few days. So it's a lot easier if I just get a copy of it. So I'll copy, photograph, however you want to do that. But, but yeah, yeah, don't email me assignments. They've got to go either in class or through that. Because I have six classes this semester. And if I have people emailing me from all of them, I can never keep track of who's in which class. And which. So that's why if it's, if it's on D2L, then it's logged to your class and to your name. So questions? Otherwise, Alright. Well, we'll go ahead with our picture of the day for today. Um, this is jumping a little bit ahead in the course because I say I never know what they're going to give me so this time we're looking at something that's actually we'll cover a little bit later and this is an example of actually a couple different kinds of nebulae. Uh, Nebula is a cloud of gas and or dust out in space. So that's actually what you're seeing here. We're looking out. Uh, This is about what you'd see right now if you went out at night. Lay down on the ground and look straight up. This is about the part of the sky that's almost straight overhead right after sunset right now. Uh, Part of our Milky Way galaxy, we're actually looking within the galaxy. And we see a number of stars, but we also see all this glow. Now, now you're not going to see this if you actually go out and do that. You're not going to see this glowing uh, light. This is done with a telescope. But what you're seeing is different types of gas and dust that also give off light. We see the brightness of the stars when we look at night. The most of the nebulae are much harder to see because they're significantly fainter. And our eyes just won't pick them up when we're looking. So when you can take a much longer exposure image, you can actually see that this whole part of the sky is filled with a red glow. And what we'll find out in a couple of weeks is that that red glow is due to hydrogen gas. Hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. So hydrogen gas, when it's excited, again, we're going to go through how this all works uh, in a couple of chapters. But when it's excited, it gives off a specific red glow, a red color. So it tells us, just by looking at that, that there's hydrogen gas there. Now, I said hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. In fact, if you take ten atoms at random out of the universe, nine of them are going to be hydrogen. The other one's going to be helium. And if you got something else, then you know you won the lottery. So if you got a, if you got an atom of iron or gold or oxygen, you know, they're common here on Earth, but the rest of, rest of the universe, you know, we're unusual. Uh, the rest of the universe is almost all hydrogen and helium. So hydrogen is in the red. The blue is not helium, as you might have tried to guess, uh, thinking that, well, one's hydrogen, the other's helium. The blue actually isn't. The blue is actually dust. And when the dust forms out there, these are just smaller grains of material. So not just a single atom of, a, of something, but actually little collections, a little bit bigger than a molecule of some type of material could be little dust grains, could be little bits of ice. But what they do is they reflect the light. And it's what we call a reflection nebula because it is reflecting the light. So the light from the stars comes out, hits all these dust grains, and the blue light is reflected better than the red light. You're familiar with that here on Earth? Maybe not, not, but why is the sky blue? Well, the sky is blue because the atmosphere is very good at scattering blue light. So it comes from all directions in the sky. So when you go out and look at a blue, a blue sky, it's blue light from the sun that's just been scattered all over the place. When you watch a sunset, what happens to the sun? What color is it? Anyone? It turns red, right? It, it, starts, it looks yellowish when it's higher in the sky and then it starts to get orange and then red, and as it gets down to the horizon, it's very, very red. The sun isn't changing, right? The sun's still the same color it was, but when you look Towards the horizon, you're looking through a lot more atmosphere, so it scatters out all the all the wave all the other wavelengths other than red. Red makes it through very well. Blues and greens and yellows don't make it through a lot of atmosphere, so they get scattered and they come from all directions. So the blue sky is really just scattered light from all the sunsets going on across the globe right now. You know, someplace out there, the sun is setting right now, and that blue that light that blue light is getting scattered all around the atmosphere. It's a similar kind of effect that goes here. So there's what we call the hydrogen or the emission nebula. There's a reflection nebula. There's one more type that's in there, a little harder to see. But you'll see that there are some dark areas, uh, dark little patches, some over here scattered around. And those are fittingly called dark nebulae they're, because they're darker areas. They're also dust but there are higher clumps of dust. When we get to our section on stars, we'll actually find out that these are the regions where stars are forming right now. And could you come back in 100,000 years from now? This nebula wouldn't look the same. You'd have some new stars that have popped out of some of these pockets, and you might find a few old stars that have gone and moved around. For the most part, you'd actually see a few new stars coming, and the actual shaping and the patterns would change. Not in our lifetimes. Go look at it again in ten years, it's going to look exactly like that. Go find a picture somebody took of it ten years ago, it looks exactly the same. Astronomical timescales, we're talking minimally hundreds of thousands, but often millions or even billions of years for things to change. So, Again, we'll talk about all those nebulae in more detail later on, but that's what we get to start with uh, for today. Questions before we jump back to chapter one? All righty, well, try to keep an eye on time-wise here, uh, chapter 1. All right, so we had, already, we had finished up the first section of chapter 1, and as I believe we were ready for the second section. I kind of brought up the summary of the last one real quick. The second part of this chapter talks about numbers and talks about light travel time, which is something that's really important astronomically because it means that we never see anything as it is right now. It doesn't matter whether it's the moon, the sun, a star, a nebula that we just looked at, a distant galaxy, we all see them as they were at some point in the past. Because light doesn't travel instantaneously. We feel like it does sometimes here on Earth because we turn on a light switch and the light comes on like that instantly. But if you get large enough distances, it doesn't. It actually takes a certain amount of time for the light to get there. So I'm going to come back to that, but let me go ahead and start off with numbers. And astronomy is really uh, good at using very big and very small numbers. So you'll use lots of of different numbers. I'll give you uh, very big numbers we'll talk about. When we talk about distances to galaxies, distances to stars, you'll start to get some very large numbers. Uh, you can also look at some very small numbers when we look at things within inside the atom. So what we do, though, is what, is what astronomers and scientists do is use what we call scientific notation to express these numbers. So if we want to write the number that I give you here, uh, which is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. It's 150 million kilometers. Okay, that's not too bad to write out, but we would get even bigger numbers. But you can also Write that out, instead of writing all the zeros, you can use scientific notation as a placeholder. So essentially what you do is you you eliminate all the zeros by moving your decimal point. And in this case, you're moving the decimal point one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight places to the left. So it's a lot easier to say this and to write this than it is 150 million. Is it really? At that level, it's sort of a wash. But if we were going to do something that was 10 to the 20th power and you're writing out 20 zeros or 50 zeros, you know, then it gets to the point where you don't want to write all of those numbers out constantly. So it becomes much, more, uh, much easier to express it that way. So in order to convert it, all you do is, the steps here, convert a number into scientific notation. You move the decimal point until there is only one number to the left. One non-zero number, I should say. So one non-zero number to its left, and count how many places you moved. So up here, decimal point isn't shown, but it would be right here at the end. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight places. There's still one number to the left of it. We moved it eight places to the left. If you move to the left, the exponent is positive. If you move to the right, if it was a very small number, then the exponent would be negative. I'm going to go over a couple examples on the next slide. So which direction you move tells you whether it's positive or negative. If you wrote a very small number, that's something like 10 to the minus 31st. You have to write 31 zeros and then some number. It's a lot easier to write it in scientific notation. So let me show you the couple of examples here. Um, so I didn't do gigantic ones. I did ones that are kind of that in-between stage where you could write them out. It's not too horrible. but Three hundred and fourteen million. So, Again, you count how many spaces? Three, six, eight places. Same as in my other example. If you're moving it to the left, the exponent's going to be positive. You can then drop all the zeros. You don't need those anymore. So you drop all your zeros, and you would just write this as the number that's left, 3.14. You'd move the decimal point into here. And you moved it eight places to the left. And that means it's a positive exponent, not negative. So if you're moving to the left, it's positive. If you move to the right, it's negative. Second example. Now we're doing a smaller number. So you've got four zeros, four, five, six, three. In this case, you want to move the decimal point to the right. So you want to go this direction, one, two, three, four, five. Stop as soon as you've passed that non-zero number. So you only have to move it five places. That makes it 4.563. But you've moved to the right this time, so it's negative. So just which direction you're moving. So when you're looking at very big numbers, very small numbers, um, whichever direction you're moving, it tells you whether that exponent is going to be positive or negative. So for math on a quiz or exam, I, might give you some, I could give you something that says, you know, what would this be in scientific notation? I wouldn't, I'm not, there's some in our lab that I'm going to actually have you do calculations where you have to multiply numbers or things together. That I would not give you on a quiz or an exam. So that's why I kind of specify what kind of things you might see on that. I might give you something that just says this, you know, this, and then, you know, four choices. Which of these is this expressed properly in scientific notation? So that kind of thing you might see. Some of the stuff I'm going to have you do in lab where I have you multiply numbers in this, you're not going to see that on the, on the exams. All right. So, a little bit, okay, a lot of this I want to just go over because you're going to see these numbers and I want you to know what they mean. Questions? Feel free to jump out with questions if we got them. All right. Uh, metric units. Again, I told you for your solar observations, you don't have to use uh, metric. But typically, any scientific measurement that is made is going to be in metric units. And there are three standard, there's actually technically seven sets of seven units, but the main ones that we would use for this class would be things like distance. You use the meter. Meter is very close to a yard or a little more than 3 feet. Uh, We use the second for time. Yay, it's the same, right? I don't have to worry about converting anything there. And then we use the kilogram for mass. Um, so different than the units that, we t- that you typically use in everyday, everyday life. Those are the three main ones. And you can figure out other things based on those. So there is no the metric unit for volume. There isn't a specific volume unit. It would be, uh, volume would just be the length. So a volume of a cube would be the length times the length times the length. Or it would be cubic meters, cubic centimeters. In our units, it would be what? Cubic inches, cubic feet, if we're measuring a volume. So that's just how you you can put them together. Velocities. How far are you going, right? We do velocities in miles per hour, meters per second. What distance you're going divided by how much time you're doing. So, the velocity, the velocity would be something that you can figure out from the, from the other sets of units. There are a couple other uh, basic units that are less used. These are the three main ones and the ones that you'll see from time to time here. We'll talk about masses, we'll talk about times, we'll talk about lengths. Although astronomy will also use some other units because in terms of masses and lengths and times even, these units are way too small. If we start talking about the distance to the sun in meters, remember how big it was? We had it in kilometers, right? I gave it to you in kilometers back here. It was 150 million kilometers. It would be 150 billion meters. You've got to add three more zeros. That's just a very close distance. That's only looking at the sun. So we're going to use some other sets of units as well. But these are the standard ones that everything is based on and that you'll see in any kind of science. So what I really want to look at is, how about distances? What if we start to get to some of these big distances? The nearest star to us is 40 trillion kilometers. I'm trying to get to the point where you get tired of writing out all those zeros. You know, do you really want to write out all those zeros every time? And that's the nearest star. The stuff we were looking at today, you'd have to add a few more zeros to that. So that's the nearest star. That's Alpha Centauri. It's the nearest star to the Earth as 40 trillion kilometers. Now we could write that out a little bit easier as 4 times 10 to the 13th. It still doesn't have any meaning to us. At least not to me. I can't imagine 40 trillion Right? You know, my bank account's way below 40 trillion dollars. Um, so, I mean, that's not a number that I have everyday concepts of. You hear trillions if you take a political science class or you're you know, you follow national debts or deficits or defense budgets or anything. You know, you find out that there are numbers that exist in the trillions, but we just can't comprehend them. They're just too big for our, for our minds. We don't wrap our heads around them. So what we do is we define other ways to measure these large distances so that the numbers can actually make sense. And one of those that we do is what we call the light year. You may have heard it, it's common terminology in science fiction and and things, but what we know about light is light is as fast as anything can travel, and it has a very specific speed, which is the maximum speed anything can travel in the universe, 300,000 kilometers per second. So what the light year is, even though it says year, it's not time, it's distance. The light year is the distance that light travels in one year. So if we calculate that out, okay, with how many seconds are there in a year and it's traveling 300,000 kilometers per second, we would find that light travels about 10 trillion kilometers in one year. 10 trillion 40 trillion, they're still massive numbers, but we're starting to, we're going to get, a, get a way to get to a point where we can actually comprehend these. Instead of talking about 10 trillion kilometers, that's four. This is four times bigger, right? 40 trillion versus 10 trillion. In light years, we'd say that the nearest star is four light years away. But four, I can count four, right? I can get to four. One, two, three, four. I can get that high. If you want me to count to 40 trillion, well, you've got to give me a few thousand years to sit there and count there. Even if I'm counting one number a second. But four is something I can comprehend. So if I say something is 40 trillion kilometers away and something else is 183 trillion kilometers away, do you have a sense? One's further away, but do you really get a sense of how much further they are away? But if I say four light years and 40 light years, right? it's like driving four miles versus driving 40 miles. You, you at least have some sense, oh, it's 10 times further away. So it doesn't change anything. It's just a different set of units. We still can't comprehend the distance. Right? We still can't imagine 40 trillion kilometers. But when I start talking about four light years, it's a lot easier to do that and to compare. So we do that a lot of times. We'll see some numbers like that that we use to be able to uh, compare some of these different numbers. Um, now, a light year is great, but it's too big to use in the solar system. If we said how many uh, light years away is the sun, it would be a little fraction of a light year. Not, not, not nothing, but it would be a very small fraction, so it's really too big to use within the solar system. Within the solar system we use another unit we call the astronomical unit. Work conveniently for the solar system. Remember we had 150 million kilometers between the Earth and the sun? Jupiter is five times further away than that. Neptune is 30 times further away than that. And You're getting to some of those big numbers we don't want to have to deal with. But what we define is one astronomical unit. The definition of it is how far the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. How far is the Earth from the Sun? So we can define that to be hundred and fifty million kilometers and then instead of saying you know, the Earth is 150 million kilometers away from the Sun and Mars is 225 million kilometers away from the Sun. Again, do you sense that in your head, the difference? Or does it work better if I say one AU and one and a half AU's? Now all of a sudden you have one at one and one at 1.5, you, you get a be- I think you get a better sense of how many times further away something is. When you're trying to look at compare one to one and a half, they're numbers that our brain actually will Uh, will acknowledge. If we start talking about 150 million and 225 million, you know one's bigger, but how much bigger is it? Well, you'd have to sit there and calculate calculate it out. So that's why we'll use these And when we're talking about the solar system. uh, Briefly, or anything in the solar system, we'll be looking at um, astronomical units. So the smaller the number, it just makes it easier to comprehend. We can, oh, I'm sorry, question. Let me get this and then I'll get you. She, oh, is she first? I didn't, I didn't, okay. I just, I just have a Sure. When it says like average distance, is that because the, or like the distance will change? The distance does change, and we'll come back to that in another, in a couple chapters. Yeah, sorry. I'm always curious, how do we know these things are that far away? How do I, there are methods that we can use to measure. Uh, distances, And we'll actually go over the whole distance scale. We'll be talking about that coming up. But there are ways that you can measure how far away various stars are, various planets are. Planets are one of the easier ones for at least the close planets. You can bounce a radar signal off of it and find out how far away it is. Oh, that's how we decide. That, for, for planets, now, that doesn't work for stars or galaxies. There's other methods we have to use. But if I want to figure out how far Mars is away from us right now, send a radar dish, send a pulse to it, it bounces back. Radar travels at the speed of light. I know how fast it went, how long it takes to get back. I can calculate the time. So there are ways to. There, there's more. It's more complicated when we start talking about stars. When I say a star is four light years away, these aren't like hypothetical. No, you know, these, uh, no. These are actual measurements. We can actually measure. We can actually measure them and reasonably accurately, not to the nearest millimeter, right? Like we could measure positions where you know your GPS can pinpoint you to within what a few feet on the Earth. Mm-hmm. Well, we can't do it that close, but we can do it to a similar, to a decent accuracy. Good. Okay, so what I'm just trying to get at, the point I'm trying to get across here is that if we're trying to talk about one mile, if I came in and didn't have this up on the screen and I told you that I traveled 63,360 inches today, You wouldn't know what it was, right? You wouldn't know that that, I already told you up there it's one mile. But you wouldn't have known that. 5,280 feet you might because that number might stick in your head is 5,280 feet in a mile. But if I tell you one mile, that's something you can comprehend. So you could give, you know, distances traveled in inches. Hey, it looks like you traveled a lot further, right? You got those real big numbers there. But that's the whole idea. It's the same thing that we're doing when we're using astronomical units or we're using light years. All right. Want to move on to light travel time? Uh, what we want to look at here. One of the difficulties with light, and one of the bonuses that astronomers get, is that it does not travel instantly. In, it does not travel infinitely fast. It's not like light leaves the sun and it's here right now. The light we're looking at. What do we have? It is just about nine o'clock. So the light we're looking at at the sun left about 8:52, about eight minutes ago. Takes like that's how far away the sun is. That even traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second, right, that's not kilometers per hour, which is still a lot more than any speedometer on any vehicle travels. Right? That's not per hour. That's per second. Even at that speed, it still takes about eight and a half minutes for the light to get here from the sun. It Takes about a second for it to get here from the moon. So even when we see the moon, we're not seeing it as it was now. We, as it is now, we see it as it was one second ago. Right? Big deal. The moon's not going to change in a second. It still looks the same. Uh, sun, you know, if the sun disappeared right now at 9 o'clock on the 30th of August, we wouldn't know about it until 9.08. Because the light that left it over that time is still traveling to us. The l- sun would still look just fine. That means there's lots of objects out there in space that we study that aren't there anymore. They're gone. We can be studying a star that exploded thousands of years ago. But the light, the information has not yet gotten to us because light can only travel at a limited speed. Andromeda Galaxy, I'm going to jump out to that because I already mentioned 4.3 light years, 2.5 million light years away. If we look at a picture of the Andromeda Galaxy, we don't see it as it looked now. We looked at it as it was 2.5 million years ago. What does it look like now? Well, I can tell you with pretty good confidence it probably doesn't look any different. Galaxies just don't change much in a couple million years. So it probably looks exactly the same. Does that mean a few stars haven't blown up in it that we just don't know about yet? That we might find out about tomorrow or 10 years from now or 100 or 1,000 years from now when the light finally gets to us? But we don't know what it, exactly what it looks like right now. The Andromeda galaxy could have disappeared magically. Some you know advanced alien civilization wiped out an entire galaxy and made it disappear. We still wouldn't know. If it did that a million years ago, we'd still be waiting another million and a half years for that information to get to us. The good thing is that means that we can study things as they were a long time ago. The bad thing is, means we can never see anything as it is right now, no matter what we study. You know, even us, right? I can't see you as you are this instant. We could figure out the distances, and we could figure out the velocity and find out that some, you know, billionth of a nanosecond passed that it took light to get between us. It's minuscule and we don't change. For the most part things don't change. When we get to the Sun, you know, I'm going to tell you pretty confidently that if you wait eight and a half minutes the Sun's still going to be shining. That it did not magically disappear sometime in that. But we don't have that information. I can tell you that if you come back in four years that Alpha Centauri is still going to be there. It's not a star that's going to be gone in four years. The Andromeda galaxy is not going to change significantly in two and a half million years. However, we do look at galaxies that are billions of light years away. Sometimes you'll see all this new, most distant galaxy, it's 13 point something billion, billion light years away. That means that the light left it before the Earth formed, before the Sun formed, before the galaxy formed, and has been traveling all that time. What that galaxy looks like today is probably nothing like it looked at that point. But the good thing is we can see what galaxies looked like early on, and we'll come back to that towards the end of the class when we try to study, you know, the history of the universe and to look at some of that. I'm not hurting your head, right? I'm trying to wrap your head. Some of those numbers kind of kind of throw you a little bit. All righty. So just summarizing a little bit of kind of what I went through on these. What does it mean? We can never see anything as it is right now. The further we look out the further back in time we're looking. For the most part, for anything close to us, except for those couple extreme cases that I gave you, things don't change. I can tell you pretty confidently that most of the stars that you see in the night sky probably are still the same as they are right now. Most of the stars that we see are within a few hundred to maybe a thousand light years away, meaning we're seeing them as they were a thousand years ago, back in, you know, 1018. But stars don't change that quick. Star, a thousand years to a star is you know, like a second of your life. Well, did you change from one second to, a nec- to the next? Generally, probably not. So the stars really don't change all that much. And the, if you come back in a thousand years, the constellations and everything will look pretty much the same. Doesn't mean there couldn't be any cases. But overall, you're not going to see a massive change in that short of a time. But when we get to the further distances, it does make a, make a difference. So just summarizing kind of what we went over here. We talked about scientific notation as ways of looking at very big and large numbers. We talked about the metric units, sometimes called the SI units, that are used in science. Uh, the big thing was that we used distances. We used two different uh, sets of distances, the astronomical unit and the light year, to be able to measure these. So instead of giving you Billions upon billions of kilometers or meters for the distance. We can talk about smaller numbers of astronomical units or light years. And then, because things do not, light does not travel infinitely fast, we can never see anything as it is right now. Yes, ma'am. Wait, so, in yes. essence, it's like time drag. In a way, we're seeing. We can't travel back. We can't go touch it. We can see it. Well, lo- looking at it. Yeah, it but looking at it, yeah, we see it. We can see. We see, say, we see the sun as it was eight minutes ago. If you're watching a sunset. You know, if you're watching the sunset, the sun's already, yeah. right? you know, it's eight minutes ago. That light left the sun eight minutes before when the sun was up higher. So yeah, it, in a way, you could think of it as a time where we're looking back. we can look back it's in time. Landmark, yeah. yeah. but we can't go do anything. It's not like it's not like you can actually yeah, travel and go one. do anything about yeah, it. but it. yeah, good. All right, well, let me finish up chapter one. This is a little short one I want to do. Actually, it's more just a um, website that I'm going to use, so let me see if I can get this opened up. Just to kind of go through the scale of the universe, this is a... Oh, come on. Is it coming up? No, it's not. There we go. You have to close that out first, probably. There we go. Nope, that's not the one I wanted. It came up in the other browser. There we go. Okay, The link to it is on there if you wanted to play with it yourself. This is actually a scale of the universe. I believe there's an app app for it, at least for iOS devices. Essentially, this is what they've gone through. And they've gone through and done. You may have seen, I don't know if anyone's ever seen, there's this Powers of 10 video that was done back in the 70s where they kind of zoom through from a person sitting there and they zoom out through the edge of the universe and then back into them. Uh, You can look it up. It's on YouTube. You can find it. This is kind of a more modern version. Uh, Where you can scroll through the entire uh, entire universe, and it defaults to the sizes that we're familiar with: a person, a beach ball, maybe some objects that you're not familiar with, a giant earthworm, um, or the I'm sorry, Rafflesia. Don't know how the pronunciation on that, but uh, giant flower. It's actually the largest single flower, which is about almost the size of a person, about a meter in size. And then you can scroll outwards. So if you take the little, I'm only going to go one direction, but I'm going to go outward. And you can actually look at larger and larger objects. The human will continue to shrink there. So if you want to see a human compared to a T-Rex, or an elephant, or a giraffe, or the Apollo module. And are we still, you can still barely, barely, I don't know if you can see it on that, but barely, barely see the human there. As you start to get up to larger and larger things. Now these are things that you're probably heard of, Eiffel Tower, the Great Pyramids, the Gateway Arch. So some of the larger objects here, larger objects here on Earth, and I'm going to try to get out a little bit further. We'll start to get into a few astronomical objects. There's one, there's a couple in there. Halley's Comet is one, Deimos is one, that's actually one of the moons of Mars, and Very small moon, I mean, it's about comparable to Mount Everest, which is big for Earth. But when you start thinking about things out in space, that isn't all that big. So it's a relatively small object uh, there. If we go further out, we actually start to get some others. Uh, These are some of the other uh, moons. Uh, Two of these are moons of Pluto. Um, Nix and Hydra are two of the moons of Pluto. Uh, Dysnomia is another one of the moons of the, uh, the outer, outer part of the solar system. And they're comparable to the state of Rhode Island. So just give give you a rough sense of how big they are. Uh, to give you a sense of how big Rhode Island is, you can take the entire, what is it now, 8 billion population of the Earth. They'll all fit in Rhode Island. Now you want to all stand side by side. You've got to really like each other because you're standing, you'd have somebody standing next to you and in front of you and it would be, and you have to never have to want to move any place. You'd only get about your one or one and a half square feet of space. But you could actually fit eight billion people. It's kind of interesting just to think about that, that you could fit the entire population of the world there. Would not be comfortable. You had to not have to go to the bathroom, right? Because you're not getting, you've got thousands and millions of people going out in every direction. But that's the idea of how big, every th- of how big even just a smaller state is. So I'm going to jump out so we get out to some of the other objects here. We finally get out to uh, Pluto. Um, Pluto there. Eris is another one of the objects out there by Pluto. Those are relatively <coughs> small. We're increasing in size, so you haven't seen any bigger objects yet. So we're starting off with some of the smaller, uh, smaller objects here. Uh, Pluto and Eris are two large objects out just at the edge of the solar system. The ones coming up here. Oh, I'm sorry, which one? That Io. Io is one of the moons of Jupiter. The things, the things come out from it. Yes, <laughs> it's actually volcanic eruptions. Oh, it, okay. is, it is the most volcanically active object in the entire solar system. Uh, so forget volcanoes on Earth. I mean, this thing is constantly erupting. What is it, Io? Or is Io. It like Io. Io, yes. Question? Or, I'm sorry? Is Pluto a planet? Oh. No. <laughs> nope, sorry. My daughter argues with me about it, but it's, it's not a planet. I, I, I mean, that's the classification. And the thing is, it doesn't fit. You can go back to it. I don't really go over it as much in this class. Let me go back to Pluto there and do one little, oops, where were we? There we are. Pluto is small, very small compared to a lot of the other, other objects. But we've also found some, of these, some other objects out there by Pluto that are the same size. Eris is one of those. Eris is out beyond, a little bit beyond Pluto, but is very similar in size. So it came to the point back about a little over a decade ago that astronomers started finding more objects like this and like Pluto out there. And then it became the point, are we adding planet 10, 11, 12, 13? When, when, when did these things get too small and you didn't have it be a planet anymore? So it became the point where we could have 15, 20 planets, but is this thing that's orbiting around that's only you know, two miles across, is that a planet that's orbiting around the sun? You know, where were you drawing the line? So what they did about a decade ago was come up with a definition of a planet, which was never done before, and actually define what does a planet have to do. It's got to orbit the sun. It's got to be big enough that it crushes itself into a sphere by gravity. And it has to clear out its orbit of debris. Pluto fails on the last test. So does Eris. So they're not classified as planets. So does that mean it runs into things? It means that there's lots of debris out there by it. So there's lots of Pluto-like objects out there. Pluto just happened to be the first one that we discovered. So there's lots of other objects out there that are Pluto-sized or even smaller. Some of these other ones like it would also be out there in that region. It just has not cleared out that whole region. There's a whole belt of objects that we're now discovering hundreds and thousands of objects out there. Pluto's one of the largest of them, admittedly. But it's not massively larger. It's not like you have Jupiter and then you have nothing that are little specks of dust next to Jupiter, comparatively. We don't have that with, with Pluto. Are there some astronomers out there that think Pluto should be? There are some who want it from traditional regions. that it's been, It was a planet for so many years. But this object here, Ceres, was also once classified a planet. Back in 1800, it was discovered between Mars and Jupiter. And it was, oh wow, there was empty space there. Maybe there's this new planet. And they discovered it and tracked its orbit. And hey, it's a planet. And then a a year later, they found another object out that region. And a couple years later, they found more. Now we know of tens of thousands of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter. Ceres is just the largest of them. Pluto's kind of the same way, except because of an intense search for Pluto back in the early part of last century, We've probably found it decades before we ever would have. It might have been found in the 80s or the 90s just by chance, but it probably wouldn't have been discovered in 1930. It was an intense search looking for another planet out there, and Pluto turned out not to be what they they happened to find it. It was more of an accident that they happened to find it. So what I want to do, because I want to go ahead and break, uh, break here in a minute so I can get you some time for the work on the lab. Um, but you can zoom out. It'll go out through solar system objects. There's some of the large, getting to the larger planets. You know, so by comparison, the Earth is now disappearing in size. You're getting to some of the smaller stars. Sun there. Sun is, it, sun is a r- relatively small star by comparison. You've seen a few there that are smaller. But as we get out bigger, keep an eye on the sun there as we get out to the actual really large stars and our sun starts to disappear by com- we're not out to the largest ones yet we're still going sun's the sun's disappeared and we're still not to the largest stars wow. here we go getting there we go the one in the upper right hand side up there vy canis majoris is actually the largest known star if you stuck that in our solar system mercury would be inside it venus earth mars and jupiter that's how big, how big and massive that star, how gigantic that star is. If you put it, put it right where the sun is, you know, we'd be orbiting inside it, so we'd all be gone because we'd be inside the star. Uh, but the outer planets could still be there. Then we start to get to other objects, so let me get to the whole... You'll start to see some nebulae come up in here with some interesting names. You'll have Gomez's hamburger there, very creatively named uh, ones. Ant Nebula, Helix Nebula, Eskimo Nebula. Uh, You may have seen like the photographs of the Pillars of Creation, the great nebulae there. Yes sir? Who chooses to name them? A lot of them are named by astronomers or amateur astronomers. A lot of them are just classic names that have been used. Typically when the astronomers talk about them, they don't talk about the Crab Nebula, they talk about either M1 or another catalog designation. They usually refer to them by catalog designations. Crab Nebula is more the popular name. So a lot of them are just, you know, somebody looked at it once and thought it looked like this and nobody argued with them, so the name kind of stuck. Or or they saw that maybe it did sort of look like, you know, if you see the crab in the Crab Nebula good for you cuz I don't I don't, but you know, if you see the crab in there, maybe you do, maybe you do, but um, let's go ahead out a little bit further. How do they see all these things, though, out this far? Like how oh, but we're not even out that far. We're still within our galaxy. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> how do they see? I mean, are there actual. What are a telescope? Tel- a lot of these? You can see yeah, these very easily telescope. with a small telescope. Oh, yeah. Oh, small. Right. Don't even need a big telescope to see some oh, of these. Wow. You can actually see some objects out here. Let's go. The um, Magellanic clouds. A- anyone ever traveled south of the equator? No? Okay. Yes? Yeah. If you look up in the sky at night, depending on the time, you'll see two fuzzy patches. Those are, those are two galaxies. Those are actually satellite galaxies of our Milky Way called the Magellanic Clouds. Named after Magellan when he saw them, but there's actually they're actually two small galaxies. You can see them with, you don't need a telescope, you don't need binoculars, you can just look out there and see them. They're just hanging there in the sky. So Maybe never looked for it before, if you travel down to Australia or Chile or someplace well south of the equator, they're actually easily visible. You can't see them here, you're too, you're too, we're too far north. It would, just look, it would not look quite as pretty as, it would look like a little fuzzy white patch in the sky. If you've seen the Milky Way, kind of a big long patch, these are just more of a blotch in the sky. And you'd see the two of them, they're very easily visible. You do not need a telescope, even though they're hundreds of thousands of light years away. do not even need a telescope to see them. A couple other galaxies, where is, do we get out to, well I'll do our Milky Way I was going to say. They don't have the Andromeda, I thought the Andromeda was on there. Andromeda, there it is, I missed it. Okay, Andromeda galaxy, very similar to our own Milky Way. That's about two and a half million light years away. You can see that without a telescope too, if you you know where to look. It's not going to stand out, you can see it from here. You have to know where to look and you'll see this little fuzzy star looking thing. Now, if you see with the telescope or binoculars, you can see it's better. But you can actually see it even without that. And then I'm kind of just going to zoom through the rest. If you want, I mean, I gave you the link to the website. If you want to play around and look, you can go much further out to look at even larger galaxies and now clusters of galaxies and getting out to the largest structures in the universe. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Hubble Deep Field was an image that Hubble, what they did was they pointed the Hubble Telescope for a long time. Every time they had free time out, it, they pointed this one spot of the sky that was empty. That they couldn't see anything. And they ended up finding all of these galaxies, not I mean, thousands of galaxies. This little teeny tiny point of the sky where if you look at it right now, with other stuff, there's nothing there. And they were able to find that and that's some of our earlier studies of the universe. And then you get out to the edge of the observable universe. You can zoom back in. You can go down to atomic scales on this. So if you wanted to play around with it, you can. It's not not required to, but I kind of just like to do that as a little bit kind of a zoom through and look at a few different things there. And you said this is on D2L. The the link to it is on your slide. I gave you the link on the slides, the website. It's actually one of the fo- one, If you go to the APOD, you can search for it too. It was one of theirs. They used it one of the times. But the link is in the slides that I gave you, so you can actually go that and you can go play around with it if you like. All right, so then I want to get you started on lab. So I have a little lab exercise. Oops, I forgot to give you these two that I promised you. Let me. This is just the syllabus update that I promised last time. The only thing that I changed just to correct it was the points structure. What I gave you in the detail was correct where I broke down each assignment, but when I had that table at the top, so essentially the little table under grading procedures is all that's been changed there. So I just have that so that it's now correct and matches up with the thing, with the sections below it. So one, two, three, and one, two, and three. Okay. Alright, so for the lab what I'm going to have you do, it's a little bit on uh, so making a couple measurements. And doing a few little uh, calculations here, let me stop this we